Okay, so Daniel chapter number three is where we're at this morning. Daniel chapter number three. And we are in the middle of the story. Uh, I kind of hate calling it a story because it makes us think of it being uh, uh, made up, doesn't it? Kind of dis, uh, discredits it a little bit. Maybe it's an account. We could say it's the account of the story. Oh, there I said story again. Look at that. And maybe it's the account of the three Hebrews and the fiery furnace. And so uh, one that we've probably heard many times, uh, anyone who's grown up around church or around the Bible has heard it many times. But anyway, uh, what we've been seeing so far is that um, Daniel and his three friends here, the three Hebrews, uh, had taken a stand. They had uh, decided that they were going to live right even in the midst of Babylon, even in a place where living for God was not common, was not popular. They took a stand whenever many of the their uh, fellow Jews uh, decided to assimilate and to blend in with Babylon and take on the, the uh, culture of the Babylonians. But instead they said, we're not going to defile ourselves with the king's meat. We're not going to defile ourselves with the culture and the customs of Babylon. They were okay with the things that was okay with God. This isn't saying for us to isolate, for us to uh, build a monastery on a, a remote island or out in the middle of nowhere and to insulate and isolate ourselves from the world. But instead, they said, we're going to draw the lines where God has drawn the lines and we're going to evaluate, we're going to uh, discern. We're going to try the spirits, if you will, and the things that are uh, are right with God, the things that are good and uh, are pleasing to Him. That's okay. We can jump in there. We can do that. They became part of the Babylonian government. They became advisors to the king there in Babylon. Uh, they were taking part in the places that was uh, okay with God, but in the things such as the idol worship and the bowing down that we're going to see here, uh, eating of things offered to idols and uh, just different spiritual wickedness and things, they said, we're going to separate from that. We're going to stay clean from those things. And they took this stand, and because of this, God had blessed them. God had promoted them. He had prospered them. And he had put them in a position where they weren't advisors to the king. They were in the, the highest offices in the land, and they were having an influence on uh, the most powerful man really in the world at that time. The one that God said was the golden head that had power over man, that had been given uh, dominion over the lands at that time. And they had direct access and influence to him. And we're going to see that through these things, that they used this access and this influence, and it left an impression even on someone as pagan and as powerful as King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we said last week that this has been probably somewhere around 20 years uh, between chapter 2 and chapter 3. They have been enjoying the, the prominence and the position that God had put them in for some time now. But there are several things that we learned last week about this as they had their... Uh, lives of principle, they were living faithfully, unwavering for God, that it wasn't going to make them uh, popular, even though they were at a, a, an area of respect or a position of respect, it wasn't going to make them popular, and it wasn't going to guarantee that there would not be another trial. And so as we looked through this last week, we saw that we need to stay faithful after blessings. 
Because what often happens is whenever God blesses us and he provides for our needs and we are increased, we tend to draw back from him. Because things are going good, we no longer need him, and so we distance ourselves from him. So that's something we need to watch out for. And so these three Hebrews that we're looking at here today, they continued to walk with God even when he prospered them, even whenever he uh, advanced them, even when he promoted them. And so we need to make sure that whenever things are going good, we don't leave him behind. Um, as I said, your faithfulness and God's blessings don't exempt us from future trials. I would actually venture to say that the opposite is true, that whenever you take a stand for God and whenever you set out to live for God, it ensures future trials because we are living in a place that is hostile toward God. And not only that, but uh, just the fact that faith that is untested can't be trusted. Okay. And so the Bible tells us that the trying of our faith works patience. It also purifies our, pay, or purifies our faith. It also causes us to lean more heavily on God. So whenever we take a stand, whenever we live for God, there will be trials and testings, but it is for our good, not to our detriment, okay? Uh, another thing that we found out last week is that this world wants you to conform. The Hebrews were there. They were living by their principles, by their uh, convictions, and they weren't trying to force it on anyone else. They weren't trying to pass laws that the the rest of the Babylonians had to become Jewish or had to worship their God. They were content to live by their convictions. They were content to live godly in an ungodly nation. But the ungodly nation wasn't content to let them live godly. And we'll find that in the world that we live in today, that whenever you try to live for God, whenever you try to live a life that is clean and is pure and is pleasing to God, that you are going to quickly draw uh, criticism. You're going to uh, make enemies, even when you're not trying, even whenever uh, you are not doing anything adversely to those folks, there are going to be people who suddenly have a beef with you just because you're living good. The Bible tells us in uh, 2 Timothy that we've been studying on Wednesday night that in the last days that men would be, uh, men would hate those that are good. And so that's what you find happening, and it, it was happening back then. And so the world wants you to conform. It is convicted, it is uh, uh, grieved, I guess we could say. It is made guilty by the contrast between darkness and light. The Bible says that they, uh, they hate the light, they love the darkness because their deeds are evil, right? And so whenever you are good, they're going to hate the light that is in you. And so they want you to conform. They want you to play by their rules. They want you to... Uh, adopt their principles and their convictions. They want you to do things their way. And if you stick to the things of the Bible, there is going to be, uh, there is going to be uh, negative results that follow that. And anyone who's taken a stand is going to find that. Um, Relate to what I just said, you can leave the world alone, but they won't leave you alone. Right? We don't have to go out looking for a fight. We don't have to be uh, out there trying to be combative with people. We're not forcing, we're not Bible thumpers going out and trying to make the world uh, believe what we do, but we are to live it in a convincing enough way that hopefully it would draw them unto God, right? And that's what was going on with the three Hebrews is that they were living for God in a way that brought conviction upon these people and they didn't like it. 
And so we can leave the world alone, but they won't leave you alone. They'll be angry even if, just because you don't bow down to them. They say everyone has to be, uh, everybody has to be, what's the word they always use? Um, it's leaving me at the moment. Anyway, they'll talk about open-mindedness. That's a, another word for what I'm looking for. Tolerant. There you go. That's the word I was looking for. They say you have to be tolerant. You have to tolerate, but it only works one way usually, doesn't it? You have to tolerate them, but they won't tolerate you. And we see this going on with Daniel and his three friends here is Daniel and his friends were tolerating Babylon just fine. They were living there. They were working there. They were continuing to worship God and serve him and be good citizens of the land. But the rest of the people of the land wasn't too happy about that, especially the king Nebuchadnezzar. And we find that he became angry. He became furious because they wouldn't play by his rules. Uh, but even though the world won't leave you alone, and another good thing about it is that God won't leave you alone either. Right? That's something we take heart in. Whenever the world comes against us, whenever the world is mad because we won't walk to the beat of their drum or march to the beat of their drum, God is ever-present. He was always with us. Uh, another thing we looked at last week was that the world will use those who have influence to try to influence you. We saw that those who were brought down before this statue and were commanded to bow down were those who were in authority, those who were in leadership positions, those who people were looking, uh, looking to for guidance and for direction. And so today, still to the same effect, it may not be so much political, it may not be so much governmental, but there are many people who have influence today and they are still hard at work influencing you as they're bowing down, they're trying to get you to bow down as well. And it's working. And so be careful of who is influencing you. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to continue in this passage and we're going to uh, see some more lessons about going through the fire. So let's go down to verse number eight, uh, really where we left off at. We covered a little bit of this, but we'll read from verse number eight down to verse 18. It says, Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They come and they're buttering him up. They're coming and giving him titles and saying that they are uh, trying to, uh, I guess we would call them brown dozers today. We have that, that saying come, carry over here. And so they're coming to him. Oh, king, live forever. And then now the message will flow out. Thou, O king, has made a decree that every man shall, uh, that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready, at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made? Well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Get this. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Since he, since he asked, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image, which thou hast set up. As we look at this passage, a lot of times the familiarity of it takes away some of the awe and the wonder of it. Because I've learned this from the time I was real little. We've seen the pictures, we've seen the cartoons, we've read it in the little Bible storybooks. The three Hebrews get through in the fire because they wouldn't bow down. And because of the familiarity of it, we don't see how tremendous the lessons is that it teaches us here. But as we look at these three men, they have taken a stand. They said, it's not three little children. It's not, the, not all these cutesy renderings of it. It is three men who have decided at the risk to their own life that they are going to obey God rather than man. We find the New Testament version of this would be whenever uh, Paul and Silas are thrown into jail, whenever the different uh, apostles are commanded not to preach uh, in the name of Jesus and not to proclaim his name. And they say unto the leaders, you judge whether it is better to obey God or man. Right? And so this is the decision that they have made. They said, we are going to obey God rather than men. We are going to worship him and him only. We're going to follow his rules and his laws and the things that he has commanded. We are going to walk according to his statutes and his dictates and not unto yours. It wasn't that they were being disrespectful about it. It wasn't that they were going about it in some cavalier attitude. It wasn't in any, any way whatsoever that they were trying to make themselves out to be something. Instead, they were making their God out to be much, and they were more than happy to follow along with the things of Babylon as long as it was in agreement to their God. So in the world that we live in today, we should be the best citizens in this place in which we live. We should strive to obey its laws and follow its rules. We should strive to be exemplary in everything that we do until it contradicts Scripture. Okay? And so they're showing us an example of this. And so these men were willing to hazard their lives for the sake of, the, of their God and of their walk with him. And this is tremendous for us as an example because today it is so easy for us to compromise. It is so easy for us to let down whenever there is a clash between culture and Christianity. It is easy for us to try to bend the, the rules a little bit. It's easy for us to try to blur the edges and try to make things a little smoother, a little bit easier. But it doesn't work that way. You can't straddle the fence because the two systems that are in place are completely contradictory. This world is controlled by the God of this world, by Satan, 
it follows after a different path, a different goal, a different mindset, a different reality, if you will, than what God and his children do. And so whenever these two things are opposed, there is no way to reconcile them. There's no way to blur the lines. There's no way to bring them back together that you must decide to take a stand. And that's what these men have done. And so that's what we need to be encouraged to do as well, that yes, we want to live and work and uh, be a witness and example in this world. We want to uh, represent our God well. But whenever it comes to either God's way or the world's way, we need to choose God's every time, regardless of the cost. And so looking here at this passage, we started out in verse number eight. And it says that there were certain of the Chaldeans that came before the king to accuse the Jews. And what this tells me is that these men, these Chaldeans, remember we've already been introduced to them in the past. They were some of the king's uh, prominent uh, advisors. They were some of the ones that the king had called on whenever he had this dream and couldn't interpret it, right? They were the ones that were proved to be fakes and phonies by Daniel some 20 years before, and I think they're still nursing their bitterness and their hurt, okay? And so they had been watching, they had been looking for a, a time, looking for an opening somewhere that they could retaliate against these Jews that had made them look bad. And so what we find in this is that whenever we take a stand for God, there are going to be people watching. If you claim the name of Christ, if you say that you're a Christian, if you attend church even, if they see you coming to this place, if they see you with your Bible, if they see you bow your head to pray, if they see you taking a stand for God, people are going to be watching and not always for good. We're not in a place anymore where this is going to be something where they're going to admire and respect your stand that you take and the beliefs that you have, but instead they're going to be looking at it critically and they're going to say, okay, they claim to be a Christian. They know what a Christian should be or they have an idea of what a Christian should be, and so it marks you. You claim to be a Christian down at work, they're going to see what happens whenever you have a bad day at work. How do you conduct yourself, right? Whenever you're claiming to be a Christian, whenever you talk about going to church, whenever you talk about Jesus and you talk about the Bible and you're at work and things are going wrong and you lose your cool and you say things that you shouldn't and you treat people in ways that you shouldn't, they're marking it. They're watching it, right? But the opposite is also true, that whenever you claim to be a Christian and you live it before them and they see you having a hard day, but yet they see you walking in integrity and not losing your cool. They notice that too. Whenever you are uh, gentle and generous with those who are hard and stubborn toward you, they're noticing that. Whenever you're going through difficulties in your life, whenever you're struggling with different things, but yet you can still walk with God and you can still have his name on your lips and you can still praise him for what he's doing, they're noticing that. It goes both ways, right? And so these men had been watching for a while. They've been watching these Hebrew boys, and they said, we don't find any fault in them. We're not finding anything which we can pick out, which we can cause problems with. And then they realize if there's going to be anything that's going to uh, be a fault, anything that's going to be a problem, it's going to be something to do with their faithfulness to God. 
They had been walking before these men long enough to where these men realized that these are men of integrity, that they are men who are uh, upstanding, that they are ones that can be relied upon. And so they're not going to be able to come before the king and say, hey, these guys are over here stealing. These guys are over here uh, doing this or that. These guys are living bad lives or a bad representation of the kingdom. They're saying if we're going to find anything against them, it's going to have to be where their Christianity clashes with our culture. And this was their golden opportunity. And so whenever the king makes this decree and he says, whenever you hear any manner of music, you are to bow down, you are to fall down and worship this image. They already knew what kind of men these three guys were. They already knew what was going to happen. And so they sat back and they watched. They probably got close to them. They were looking out the corner of their eye, and as they were bowing down, they were saying, will they bow down? They said, this is our opportunity. And just as they had expected, just as they thought, whenever everyone else bowed down, these three men did not bow down. Why? Because they were consistent. Because they were men of integrity. And I believe they knew. Why were they looking? Because they knew they weren't going to bow down, and they said, this is our chance. Let's see if... All of this that we've been hearing about, this God that they've been talking about, let's see if he is greater than our gods. Let's see if he's greater than our king. Because honestly, the, the gods that they served couldn't deliver them, couldn't reveal the visions, couldn't do anything else because the gods that they served were not gods at all. And so in their minds, they assumed that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be the same as their gods. Just as powerful or powerless, just as weak, just as... Uh, incapable as their gods was. And so they said, okay, you want to make us look bad? You want to be different from us? We're going to report you to the king and we're going to watch you burn in a furnace because we know your God is not able to do anything about it. So God's going to be put to the test because they took a stand. See, our God is evaluated by us. We are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. We are his body on this earth. And so all of the things that are going on in this earth, people are learning about our God and understanding about our God because of what we do, because of how we act, because of how we represent him. And so whenever they are thinking about our God, they are looking at us as examples of him. They're saying, okay, what kind of God do they serve? Is he able and so anyway, with all of these things, uh, they were standing there wanting to know if their beliefs were going to hold up, if they were going to be able. They can talk a good game whenever they are sitting in their office, carrying out the day-to-day the -day functions of uh, being a counselor to the king and all these things. But what happens when their life is at risk? What happens whenever the fire gets turned up? Will they still walk with their God? And so anyway, just... Point this out one more time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had never made trouble with anyone else. They weren't there trying to cause problems. They weren't trying to stir up things. They didn't have a demonstration whenever the king said, everyone bow down. They didn't bring out their, their lawyers and solicitors. They didn't uh, picket. They didn't march. They didn't uh, make a fuss. They didn't stir the pot, right? They just simply took a stand. And I think that's a good lesson for us. We are to preach the word, not stir the pot. And it's still going to draw attention anyway. And so verse number 13, we see this is a, between uh, 8 and 13. This is where uh, they're telling the king about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
In verse number 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. And so living before God is going to make some people mad. They had done nothing wrong. They had done nothing wicked. They, as I said, had been some of his greatest advisors. They had been exemplary citizens, all of these things. But just the fact that they wouldn't bow down, just the fact that they wouldn't do the same things as the rest of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar was in a fury and in a rage and had them brought before him. And so we don't desire to make people mad. We don't incite it. But we also don't compromise to avoid it. So this idea of being a sissy, just bending to all the whims of everyone around us, well, we don't want to offend them. We don't want to make them mad. No, we don't compromise. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. We're not going out and trying to put fuel on the fire, but we're also not going to compromise our convictions and what is true and what is right. And so in verse number 14, Nebuchadnezzar asked them a question. He says, is it true? These things I've been hearing about you, is it true? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a choice to make. Things have been ratcheted up several notches, right? And so as they come, they are standing before one of the most powerful men in their known world at the time. He has made a command. He has made it very clear if you don't obey the command, you are going to be cast in the fiery furnace. They're ushered in before him. He's probably sitting on his throne. He's red-faced, veins popping out, angry, right? And he looks at them and says, is it true, these things that I've heard about you? And in that instance, standing before a man that's that angry, irrational, and powerful, how do you respond? Well, uh, maybe, kind of. Uh, well, I don't know what they told you. It's not really like that, King. How do we respond? Do we try to take the heat off? Do we try to do that tightrope act of trying to appease both God and man? What do we do? Well, whenever he asks, is it true? Their response is we're not careful to answer you in this matter. They said, we don't even have to think about this. We're not going to have, we're not going to lose any sleep. We're not going to be anxious. We're not going to have to mince words or try to come up with something. We're not careful to answer you. We'll tell you plainly. We'll tell you straight that we are not going to worship your false God because our God says not to. Right? They had a chapter and verse, they had a principle. They had a commandment, and they said it is non-negotiable. And so they said, we are going to take a stand upon what God's word says. This isn't a preference. This isn't something that is a tradition or something commonly believed that may or may not be so. It is something that they hold in firm conviction. It is something that God has commanded. Thou shalt not bow down to any graven image. Thou shalt not worship any other god. That was clear to them. And so they said, God has made this clear and there's nothing else we can do about it. We are going to serve our God. We're going to trust him. We're going to obey his commands. 
rather than yours. And so that was a pretty firm response, right? That was pretty bold on their part because they were facing death. That was a sentence. And they chose at that time that they were going to put their faith and trust in God alone as they were going before this. They said, God has protected us. He has prospered us. He has been with us all this time. And so I'm going to stay true to his word and to what it says, and I'm going to trust him in what he is going to do through this circumstance. And so they were standing right. They were standing consistent. They were completely unapologetic because we don't need to apologize for Scripture, right? That's being done many times in religion today. The things that are unpopular in this world, people are trying to uh, calm it down a little bit, tame it down, make it more palatable to the world. Say, well, it was. It doesn't really mean that. Whenever the Bible talks about things that cause sin that the world accepts today, and people are losing their convictions on these things, people are saying, well, marriage isn't really what God said it was. We can redefine that. Wait, hold on. Who gets to make this decision? Where do we stand? Right? The things that it calls sin, well, they were just old-fashioned. It was a product of its time, and God is more progressive, and he's changing. It's okay. We can take the things that God said is an abomination or that God said is sinful, and we can change those, and we can accept them. No. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we are not careful to answer you. God has already spoken on this matter, and I'm going to uphold his position. I'm going to do what he has said to do. I'm going to hold with what he I'm going to hold the standard where he has put it at. Okay. But in verse number 15, there's further pressure here. He says, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be merciful. Maybe you didn't hear me the first time. Okay. I'm going to let this one slip. See how generous, how merciful I am. We're going to play music again. And if you bow down that time, we'll just forget all this ever happened. And we will just assume that we have pressured you and pushed you into conformity and you're finally being good little Babylonians. And so he says, if you be ready at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well, but if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. He's looking at them face to face. They know the rules. They know the consequences. How are they going to respond standing before the king? But he also says something stupid because he says, who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? Nebuchadnezzar had a bit of a God complex. He says, none of the gods of any of these groups that I have conquered and that I have overwhelmed and overcame, none of them can stand against me, Nebuchadnezzar. There is no God that can deliver you from my hand. Did you catch that? So what is he saying? He says, I'm more powerful than God. But he also asks the question, he says, who is that God? He says, I'm more powerful than all of them, but I don't know who he is. And so God says, well, let me educate you a little bit. 
We see this happening in Egypt as well whenever uh, Pharaoh is refusing to let God's people go. Because he says, I don't even know your God. <laughs> you suppose after a couple chapters and about ten plagues and the death of his firstborn, do you think he knew their God then? The challenge went out, right? And so oftentimes God is up to the challenge. If people want to know who God is, if they want to take a stand and thumb their nose at God, if they want to uh, try to provoke God, God says, okay, let me show you who I am. And that's what he's going to do here. And so he's going to find out. But here's the thing. How we stand and how we act and how we go through the fire tell people about our God. And so God doesn't come down and give him some sort of a vision or an epiphany. God doesn't come down to him and educate him. God doesn't take him up into the heavens and give him a tour. He doesn't take him up to the top of Mount Sinai. He says, let me, watch, or let me show you three good specimens of my followers and how I take care of them. I'll show you who I am by how I take care of my children and how they follow me. And so this is what happens here. They take their stand. He issues this challenge. And they are getting ready. They say, you can play the music again. You can remind us of the threat of the furnace. You can do all of these things. We'll sit here and watch your veins bulge and your face turn red. We'll hear you cuss and swear and stomp and storm around. But no matter what you do, it's not going to cause us to bow down to your false god. And they tell him in verse number 17 why it is that they're able to stand so firm under such intimidation. They say in verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve. Now that's an important part. They've been serving him all along. They have been faithful to him. They have been walking with him. They have a relationship with him. And so they have learned by experience and they have earned that position in that place of blessing. I'm not saying earn their salvation, okay? But whenever we walk with God, God blesses his children. You want to live for the devil even after you're saved, you're going to miss out on God's blessings, okay? But they said, our God whom we serve is able. They didn't say we think that he can. He's probably able. More than likely he will. They said, there's no question in our mind whatsoever. Our God is able to deliver us out of your hand. They didn't speculate as to how. There's many different ways God could have delivered them, right? Nebuchadnezzar could have fell over dead like that, right? God could have brought fire down from heaven and consumed him. He says, hey, you want to put my children in a furnace? I'll just burn you up. Seems to me that there was a king that claimed to be God, that wanted worshipped and exalted, and God made him get eat alive by worms. I mean, the, the options are endless, right? But they said, our God is able. We have absolute confidence in his ability. He's got all kinds of ways that he could deliver us, that he could bring us out of this, that he could prevent it from ever happening. He can put out the flames, or as we'll find out, he can walk with us through them. 
but our God is able. It says he will deliver us from your hand. Nebuchadnezzar, you might think that you're stronger than God. My God is stronger than you. He will deliver us out of your hand. And a lot of times God delivers us out of circumstances, but not in the way that we had imagined or the way that we had thought. Been many people who have uh, prayed for deliverance from sicknesses and from disease and from circumstances, and God decided to take them home to be with him rather than curing them here on this earth, right? And so even if God would allow them to go into the furnace, I believe he could have taken away the pain and taken them straight to glory, and they could have been before him, and he, they were still delivered out of his hand. But God had something else in mind. He wanted to demonstrate to a pagan king that this pagan king didn't know near as much as he thought he did. But he says, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, it's not, but if he's not able, it's if he chooses not to deliver us. The question was never his ability, but it was his will. They weren't presuming upon God's will. They weren't saying, okay, God, we need you to deliver us, and we need you to deliver us this way, and we're expecting it, and if you don't do it, we're going to be mad. They're saying, we know our God is powerful. We know he is able to deliver us. We know he does all things well. And so if he delivers us, great. But if he chooses not to, he's still God. He's still good. And we're still not going to bow. You see the faith there? The question is not in his ability. They said God is able. But where faith kicks in, in addition to that, is they have faith not just in his ability, but in his goodness, in his will. God can do this for me. God can make this happen. But if he doesn't make this happen, it's because he's got something else greater in store. He's got a different path that he's taking me on. He's got a different plan, a different purpose for this. And so it is up to God what is going to be the most beneficial to me, to his name, what's going to glorify him, what's going to be a better witness and a testimony to the world around us. And only he knows, right? There's many times that God has delivered, but there's also times that he has let his children go through the fire and be burnt. Many martyrs that have died at the stake, many saints that have lost their heads or different ways that have died, and so sometimes God delivers, sometimes he doesn't, but he's got a purpose behind it. You look at the 12 apostles, and all of them but John, according to uh, historical records and things, all of them but John were martyred for the faith. And even John went through a lot in getting to old age. God doesn't promise that there'll never be trials. He doesn't promise peace and prosperity. He doesn't promise smooth sailing on this earth, and he doesn't promise that the storms and the flames will never come. He doesn't promise healing. He doesn't promise deliverance. And it's not because he's not able, but it's because he is God and he knows what is best. And so in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's, um, in their case, it was best for them to come out of the fire. But others didn't have that happen, right? 
And so this is the faith that they had. They said, it doesn't matter what God does. Job said, though he slay me, still I'll trust him. Right? This is what they're saying, though he slay me. If he lets me perish in the flames, I'm still going to trust him. David said, if I make my bed in hell, lo, he is with me. He says, I've put so much faith in God that if I don't make it to heaven, it's not because of me or anything that I've done, and he's going to have to go with me there because he's my God. Right? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? This is the amount of faith that they had in their God going through the trial. And they were able to stand before this heathen king with a threat of death and stand unwavering by their faith and by their principles and say, if I perish, I perish. God is still good. God's still in control. God's still able. So he says, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve the gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Not going to do it. We're taking our stand. We're not moving one little bit because it is founded on God. It's founded on something sure and stable and true. This isn't just something we flippantly decided, but it's something that we are firmly convinced of. And so we are going to stand on this. This is why we need to know what we believe. This is why it needs to be founded upon the Bible, not on traditions, not on our ideologies and thoughts and different things, but it needs to be founded upon the Word of God because if God says it, we can believe it, we can stand upon it, and God is the one that is responsible for what happens for us when we take his word and stand on it, right? Anything else, all bets are off, right? But if we get in trouble for standing for God, God's with us, right? You get in trouble for being stupid. No promises there, okay? You get in trouble for causing trouble for doing things that are unbiblical, that's a different story. But it says, our God whom we serve. We're serving him, he's taking care of us. It's a pretty good arrangement, right? And so what's Nebuchadnezzar's reaction in verse number 19? Same one it always is, right? Wouldn't Nebuchadnezzar, he was a character, wasn't he? Would you like to stand in his court? Would you like to answer to him? Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed. Remember he talking about the red face and the bulging veins? Okay. And the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See before, oh, I'll give you one more chance. If you'll just bow down, we'll forget this ever happened. We're not bowing down. Heat up the furnace. We're going to kill you all. Right? His visage was changed. And it says that, uh, therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times uh, more than it was wont to be heated. Make the furnace hotter. Let me ask you this. Is there anyone who is fireproof? If you're throwing someone into a furnace, if you're throwing someone into a fire, doesn't matter how hot the fire is. If there's fire, it's going to burn you. It's going to kill you, right? They're not going to be in there dancing around, presumably, right? And so what is the purpose of him being the hothead? 
saying, heat it even hotter. He's wanting to make a statement, right? How dare they not bow down? How dare they not conform? How dare they not do what I said for them to do? And he became enraged and angered. Now I want to turn this around for just a second. How do you respond when you don't get your way? How do you respond when others don't conform? Furious, you get angry. How dare they? Right? You gotta be careful who you're following, who you're like, right? These are things that God will cleanse from us. It doesn't mean that just because you're saved you have it figured out. But this is where we see the fruits of the Spirit manifest in us, where we need to grow in our lives. Because honestly, were they a threat to Him? If someone doesn't believe just like you, if they don't. Uh, do things just like you, is that a threat to you? If things don't go your way, is that really a threat to you? Does it really matter what everybody else in this world's doing? How often do we get angry about things that are completely stupid? Right? And so this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, how dare you not see things my way? I'll make you pay. I'll make you see it my way. And so they heated the fiery furnace, sometimes hotter. It was wanting to be heated. In verse 20, he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now this is kind of a funny picture if you picture things in your mind like I do. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their big criminal act was not bowing down. They were a huge threat to him, wasn't they? And so let's get the toughest, the strongest guys that we have in the army to arrest them. Remember whenever Jesus was being arrested, they brought all the, the guards and all the soldiers out to arrest Jesus? And he says, why do you come at me with swords and staves, like some kind of a criminal, whenever I was daily with you teaching in the temple? Right? But he sends his strongest men and he offers them up on the altar of his rage because it says that as they go to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, that the flames come out and kill the men who were tasked with throwing them into the flames. That gives you an idea of how hot the fire is, right? Even the ones that threw them, they didn't go in the furnace. They just stood near the furnace. It killed them. Right? It says, therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound and in the midst of the fiery furnace. The end. That's not what it says, is it? The men that threw them in probably inhaled the flames and burnt their lungs out. I don't know. Got roasted like a... The marshmallow can't fire. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down into the furnace, into the flames, bound up. They weren't able to escape. They weren't able to fight. And it says, these three men fell down, burnt, or bound into the fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished. Or astonished. 
Why? Because he was expecting instant death. He was expecting maybe a scream, maybe something. But it says here that he rose up in haste and spake. Now, this is making the king uncharacteristic of himself. Imagine the king. He was the one that was in charge. He was the one in control. He was the one who would have been unmovable, that he would have been the force to be reckoned with. But when this happened, it challenged him. It moved him. It astonished him. He says, I haven't ever seen anything like this. This is different. This is strange. This isn't the way that things usually go. And he rose up in haste. And it says that he spake. Did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? That's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? I mean, they've all been there the whole time. This would have been fairly easy to see. It wouldn't have been obscure. It wasn't something going on behind the scenes. It wasn't that they threw them in and came back a few days later. It was right there. It had just happened, right? And so he looks at his advisors, looks at the other guys and says, didn't we throw three men in? And the ones that we threw in, weren't they bound? But it says, they answered and said unto him, true, O king. And he answered and said, lo, I see four men, and they are loose, and they are walking in the midst of the fire, and it says they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. There's four of them, no longer bound, no longer tied up. They are walking around in flames. You know how weird that would be to watch? That's a sight that you don't see. People don't walk in flames. And it says, and they have no hurt. They're in there like it's a warm, sunny day at the beach. They're in there just walking around in it like it's a normal room, not a furnace. Maybe they were. Maybe they're still dancing to the music. I don't know. They weren't bowing. And they were still in there without her whatsoever. But it says that there is four men in there. And the fourth one is likened to the Son of God. We find Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. The Son of God came to walk through the fires with them. The psalmist says in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. The good shepherd was there walking with them through that valley. They had no fear. They had no hurt. How is it that Nebuchadnezzar arrived at this idea that this was the son of God with them? He didn't say, wait, did a soldier fall in with them? Did someone else get cast in in our haste and in my anger? Did I mess up and get another guy? He says, no, that fourth one, there's something about him. Something different about him. This must be the God that they've been talking about. Goes back to verse number 15. Who is that God that shall deliver you? Not only is he going to deliver them, he's going to walk with them through it. Right? A great lesson that we can take away from this is that sometimes God will deliver us. Some God, sometimes God will allow us to go through it and he will allow harm. But either way, 
Anytime one of his children are in the fire, he will be with them. Jesus says, I will not leave thee nor forsake thee. Says that he sticks closer than a brother. So it doesn't matter what you're going through, whether he delivers you or whether he walks with you through it. And if it had been that they perished, he would walk them right on to glory. But he will be with you through the fire. But in this instance, he allows this wicked king to see him walking with his servants. And this king is shook. He says, this is something I never expected. I've never seen. I challenged God and I said, who is he that's able to deliver? And now I have seen it. He says, the fourth is like the Son of God. I tell you, we serve a great God. He is good to his children. The world may persecute us. The world may hate us. We may get along okay in the world. I don't know. But we still serve a good God that we can depend on, that we can count on. And his word can be stood upon. And if we're standing on his word, he is going to stand with us. And so take a lesson from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't let the threats, don't let the fire, don't let all of the things that the world may cast at us, don't let it deter you from serving God and following him. Don't let it cause you to question his word. Don't let it cause you to question his ability. And don't let the struggles that you go through cause you to question his ability or his goodness. He's got a way, he's got a plan, he's got a will, and he's working in ways that we may not see or we may not know. Would they have rather not went into the furnace to begin with? Probably so. But look at what God did by them going through the furnace. We don't have time to go into the, the rest of the story. We don't have time to see how the king responds here. But we already know the story, right? Do you think that they were special? Do you think that they were handpicked by God, that they are the only ones that he had to do that, do that for? Will he not do it for us too? The only difference is, will we walk with him? That's the question. Anyone got any questions, any comments, anything to add this, this morning to what we've looked at? His grace and, is sufficient. Because it was three of them, they were comforting each other based on... Very good point. Um, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Mm -hmm. Okay. Verse 3. Up to... 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4. I think that was... Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Great thoughts. So God gives comfort. His grace is sufficient. He enables us. 
Uh, I enjoy the stories of all the martyrs that were able to face death with, uh, with praising God, with trusting God, even in the hard times, not quaking, not shaking, not fearing, but God allowed them to do that. And it was a testimony to others. They said, okay, God is the only answer. God's the only way that that happened. But also, uh, whenever we're going through trials and troubles, it's good to have others with us. That your third one. So yeah, great, great points. Anything else? The King, very, very arrogant. Mm -hmm. And then I just imagine. <laughs> Like um, my baby, um, yeah. yeah, he just come and stand in front of, you know, adults and start talking. Say, I can't, be, you know, and he said, I can't, you know, these people, they work together, mm -hmm. they are in one accord. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure they've talked before. You know, he said, we can't be careful. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes this arrogant king to be very, very furious. Mm -hmm. Very angry, and we can see the spirit of Satan in him. Mm -hmm. that, that's how I see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he's a picture of Satan in this. Yeah, it's good to stand by what we believe. We can't be in between mm -hmm. you know, all the time. You know, it can sound very. Um, you you yourself as a Christian, mm -hmm. you want the people look at you arrogant too. Mm -hmm. Who do you think you are? And so there's there's a huge difference between confidence and arrogance, and you see those contrasted there. Yeah. And so with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had confidence, not in self, but in God. And Nebuchadnezzar, he had arrogance, and I think arrogance actually comes from a lack of confidence, with trying to force himself, with pride and whatnot. And so you see the difference between uh, meekness and pride, right? All good thoughts. Anything else? Yeah, well, there's nothing else to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a, a short break for the preaching hour. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you so much for this passage that we have in your, in your word, for this account, Lord, that we have of these men who, uh, who put you to the test, who took a stand on your word and on your way, and Lord, that you prove through them, Lord, that you can be trusted, that you are able, and Lord, I just pray, ask you just to help us to uh, to determine in ourselves, Lord, that we're going to stand on your word, that we're going to uh, trust in you, we're going to follow you. Sometimes maybe we're a, a little less uh, less confident than what they were, sometimes maybe a, a little faltering, Lord, a little more careful, Lord. But Lord, I pray strengthen us, Lord, grow us and guide us and help us to stand firm on the truth of your word. We thank you so much for all that you do. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.